trusting and obeying seems like a simple enough strategy, something that we could easily embrace, but it's honestly one of the things that we struggle with the most. And this evening, as we draw our attention to Scripture, it's going to be on that topic of trusting and obeying. Uh, specifically, as we look at three verses from Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll look at verses 1 to 3 in a sermon that I've entitled, The Joy in the Harvest, Joy in the Harvest. Isaiah chapter 9, in a moment, we'll look at the first three verses here in Isaiah chapter 9. When the church was first established, not this church, but the church in the New Testament days, in the book of Acts, we read about how Christianity was spreading like wildfire. Uh, if you've been a long time since you've read through the book of Acts, just read through it. Uh, 28 chapters, but there's a lot of details as far as how the church began and how the gospel was being preached far and wide. Uh, people were getting saved, left and right, baptized, and many were added to the church. And before Christ had ascended into heaven following his resurrection, he spoke to the disciples in some of the famous verses in Acts chapter 1, and he said this in verse number 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 said, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now the disciples faithfully picked up the torch that Christ handed to them, and they did as he instructed they trusted and they obeyed. And as a result, the church grew and became what it is today. We're here today as a church because God used faithful believers to preach the word of God, even in the face of opposition, and especially in those early days in the face of much persecution. In those early days of the church, the disciples were often beaten. They were thrown in prison and all for preaching the name of Christ. The crazy part is that none of that oppression and none of that persecution that they dealt with discouraged them. In fact, when you read through the early days of the church and what was happening there, it motivated them to be even more fervent in preaching the gospel. There was such a great joy in the disciples that they had in serving Christ and being counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ and in the name of Christ that nothing was going to stop them, not even the threat of death. Many of the disciples would end up being martyred because of their stance for Christ and their eagerness to keep preaching the gospel even when they were instructed to stop. And this was a far cry from where they had come in the early days when they first began following Christ in his earthly ministry. On one occasion in John chapter 4, we read about Jesus and the disciples as they were traveling from the southern region of Judea to the northern region of Galilee. And as they were preparing to travel, it was typically the, the way that the Jews would do things in those days that they would want to avoid the central region of Samaria altogether. So they go clear around, adding sometimes days to their journey just to avoid any interactions with the Samaritans. But on this occasion in John chapter 4, Jesus tells the disciples, we must needs go through Samaria, which was just a concept completely foreign to the Jews. The Samaritans had accepted that they were looked down upon as dogs in the eyes of the Jews, and there was this mutual hatred that they all had for one another. The Samaritans didn't want to see the Jews, Jews didn't want to see the Samaritans, and they accepted that. And here, Christ says, we're going through, boys. No matter what you say, we're going through Samaria. And on this occasion in John chapter 4, this 
as, as there was this long-standing hatred that the Jews with the Samaritans had, it was just, you know, ongoing. It kept on going no matter what, and Jesus said, we're going. And Jesus got his way, and they all traveled through the much-despised region of Samaria as if it wasn't bad enough. Because I'm sure the disciples were thinking, okay, if we're going to do this, let's at least avoid the cities. Let's avoid interacting with anyone and just get through there as quickly as we can. And much to their chagrin, what Jesus does is partway along the way through the region of Samaria, he says, you know, we're going to stop here. We're going to get a drink of water and you boys are going to go into the town of Sychar and buy some food from the people that you never wanted to see in the first place. And they end up going, probably dragging their feet, complaining the entire time as they're going. They're hoping they were going to avoid seeing people altogether. And now they're instructed to go and buy food from these people. And so they go and Jesus stays back at the well of Jacob where he ends up having this really interesting interaction with a Samaritan woman that comes to draw water uh, where after the whole course of the conversation, she ends up getting saved and the disciples eventually return with food. So they did what they were told. They come back and they have food. And during that time that the disciples were, were buying this food, there was this interaction. And so the, the woman essentially, she gets saved and she leaves and the disciples come and they kind of cross paths. And they bring the food to Jesus who was supposed to be hungry and he's all of a sudden no, no, long, no longer hungry. And instead, he points out the negligence of the disciples to do service for him when they had the opportunity to witness and to minister to the people in the town of Sychar. They come back with food and they say, okay, we did what you asked of us here. Let's eat. Let's get on our way. And he says, guys, you missed it. You missed it. There was a whole town of people that were ready and ripe to hear the gospel and to be saved. And because you're only focused on doing what you're told and doing nothing other than that, you went and you bought food and you came back. Yes, you did what you were told. You got the food, but you didn't care to see that there were souls that were in need of salvation who you were purchasing the food from. And he says this in John 4, verses 35 to 38. He said, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. Jesus tells these disciples, he told them that the people of Sychar, the very same people they interacted with, the very same people they went and they bought food from, were souls ready to be harvested ready to be harvested. He said they were white, ready for harvest. He said, other people labored, and I just sent you to sow and to reap it. And that, was, and that was it. You couldn't even do that because they were only interested in getting food and getting out of there. They missed out on the great blessing of rejoicing, he says. He said the, the ones that would have been saved would have been rejoicing, and the ones that were led, leading the sinners to, to salvation would have been rejoicing as well. There was joy for them to have in the harvest. But they missed out on it because they wanted nothing to do with these people. They didn't even know them, but they knew they wanted nothing to do with them because of where these people were from. These same unwilling men are the men that we read about all throughout the book of Acts. Faithfully preaching to anyone and everyone regardless of where they're from. What an incredible transformation 
we see as these men now realize the joy in the Lord's harvest. Back in John chapter four, they couldn't see it. They couldn't even think about needy souls. And then you fast forward to the book of Acts and all these men are thinking about is needy souls to the point where they're threatened by death and persecution should they ever preach the name of Christ again and they go out and happily preach the name of Christ to their end because many of them were martyred because of that. Huge transformation we see. Notice what we see here in Isaiah chapter 9 as we take a look at the joy in the harvest. Isaiah chapter 9, notice what we read in the first three verses. Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 3. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The context of this passage carries over from Isaiah chapter 8, where the prophet Isaiah warned Israel about the coming invasion of the nation of Assyria. Uh, the invasion of Assyria would be a very terrible time for the nation of Israel, especially the northern kingdom and specifically the northern, northern regions that are mentioned here in verse number one, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The northern regions of the land of Israel would be severely ravaged by the Assyrians when they came in. But a promise is made to them here in Isaiah chapter nine that there will come a day when those same persecuted regions will receive a special blessing from the Lord. Those northern regions may have been the first to suffer from the Assyrian invasions, but in God's mercy, they would be the first to see the light of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 4, in verses 13 through 16, it records the very beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. And notice what these verses say. Matthew 4, 13 through 16. It says this about Christ's early ministry. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, and this is all in the north, which is upon the seacoast. And notice this, it says, in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. The ministry of Christ would bring joy and gladness to Israel. They will rejoice, the Bible says, according to the joy in harvest, the time when the hard work has paid off and the bounty from all that work comes. They will rejoice as men rejoice, it says, when they divide the spoil as they celebrate the wonderful blessings that Christ brings. And with our time here this evening, I'd like to focus our attention primarily on verses two and three here in Isaiah chapter nine, uh, even limiting that, more so to just verse number three. Notice what it says here in these two verses, though. Isaiah 9, 2 and 3 once more. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy, the joy before thee according to the joy in the harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The nation was multiplied, the Bible says, and people rejoiced according to the joy and harvest. Now, as we draw some parallels to what it says there to the church, 
what is our reaction? What is our response when the church is multiplied? And I'm not asking for an audible response from you, but think about what our response is when we see growth, and specifically growth in numbers in the church. What is our response? There was great rejoicing as you read throughout the book of Acts as the Lord was multiplying the church in those early days of the church. But is that same feeling shared today? Do we have that same feeling when we add to the church, when the church grows numerically? I don't think we put enough emphasis on the growth of the church. And by the growth of the church, I don't mean just filling the sanctuary with as many people as possible, but adding souls to the kingdom. Listen to what we're told in Acts chapter 2, verses 41, 46, and 47. Acts chapter 2, 41, 46, and 47. The Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You see, the emphasis of the early church was adding souls to the kingdom, not necessarily adding people to the pews of the church. Now, that's not to say that the church didn't also teach uh, the word of God and lead people to spiritual maturity and, and have the church grow numerically, but there was such a heavy emphasis on evangelism and soul winning. And I think over the years, we've shifted from what the focus of the church has been when we first started to where we are today. The church as a whole has less of an emphasis on evangelism, less of an emphasis on soul winning while concentrating its efforts elsewhere. At the end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, it read, it said, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That didn't happen without the believers being active in what they were called to do. God didn't just drop people in the lap of the church and add them to the membership list of each local church. God was using the willingness of the disciples and other believers to go forth and to be sharing and proclaiming the message of the gospel to anyone and everyone. And as a result of their trusting and obeying, many souls were saved and were being saved every day. The truth is that God is the one who is going to multiply any church. Salvation is his work. But we are the tools we are the instruments that he's chosen to use to bring and to deliver his message of grace and truth to the unsaved world. And notice again the beginning of what it says here in Isaiah 9, verse 3. It says, Thou hast multiplied the nation. Thou hast multiplied the nation. God is the one who has multiplied. God is the one who brings the increase. We're not responsible to God for the souls that are saved. We're responsible for presenting the gospel as clearly and effectively as we can. We read in Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 and 15, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in, whom, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. In some ways, I think we become complacent today and expect God to be doing all the work when it comes to adding and multiplying the church. That if any souls should be added to the church, he will be the one to do everything and just drop them in our lap. God multiplies, absolutely. But we are also the instruments that he uses. 
Some have taken this to the extreme and focused solely on, on filling the sanctuary by becoming worldly or taking people into membership that aren't even saved. Now, if we're able to fill the sanctuary by worldly means, and there's probably plenty of ways that we can do that, our increase means nothing at all. If anything, it could be viewed as a loss, more so than an increase, even if we've filled every seat in the sanctuary. If we added to our churches through excitement and by making appeals to emotion rather than explaining God's truth to the understanding of the people, or if we add to our church in any other way other than by the power of the Holy Spirit leading sinners to salvation, whatever increase we see is honestly worth nothing. Think of what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Had he introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements to his teaching, he would have been more popular among the people. But because of the searching nature of his teaching, he didn't do any of that. At no point do we see Christ running after people who turned away from him and him saying to him, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll preach a shorter message next time. I'll make sure and you know, include more illustrations and, and more, more object lessons and you know, we'll add more music. We'll make it more exciting. Just come back tomorrow, please. We never see him do any of this. Never once did he tell them that he would shorten the message or give them you know, enough time to make their lunch reservations. Jesus absolutely pitied sinners, sighed over them, sorrowed over them, wept over them, but he never ever sought to amuse them. I feel like the church today is looking for better methods while God is just looking for better men and women. And we're just so focused on trying to amuse and entertain and trying to, to fill the church in such the wrong ways that we're losing sight of what the focus of the church ought to be. A man picked himself up from the gutter and rolled over on the ground at the feet of a pastor who the pastor happened to be walking home one night. And he said, Pastor, I'm pleased to see you, sir. I'm one of your converts, the man said, as he's laying on the ground at the feet of the pastor. The pastor said, I thought it was very likely that you were. You are definitely not one of God's converts, or else you would not be a drunk. There's a great lesson in that. You see, my converts and your converts are no good. Our converts make a mess of their lives. But the converts of the Spirit of God who are genuinely renewed in the spirit of their mind by the supernatural working of God, these are the real increase to the church of God. Our goal in evangelism, our goal in soul winning, should always be that God is multiplying through us. They're not our converts. They're God's. That God is converting souls through his supernatural means, not that we're convert, converting souls through a great sales pitch where we convince people to say something that they think they want us to say. As we think about growth in our church, pray that God would send us converts. Pray that God would fill this church, but also be active in sharing the gospel and being the instrument that God equipped you to be where he sent you to be. Notice again what we see there in verse number two of Isaiah chapter nine. It says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This verse, this verse paints a great picture of what the people God brings to the church have gone through, the remarkable change that they have seen. 
God has removed them out of the horrible darkness and has placed them into his marvelous light. If you've not been changed by God, if you're not a new creation in Christ, if you cannot say that you were once blind, but by the grace of God, now you can see, not only can the church not receive you into membership, but you're not a child of God no matter how much you insist to be. The only one who can remove us from darkness and place us in God's marvelous light is God alone. No pastor's going to do that. No believer's going to do that. Only God can do that. The only one capable of leading you out of condemnation and into the eternal joys of heaven is Jesus Christ. Now, God may use a pastor. God may use a parent. God may use a teacher. God may use individuals like you and me, but he's the one that is ultimately converting and saving the soul. Our goal as believers, our goal as a church, should be to have as many people as possible know about Jesus Christ. I want to see this sanctuary filled to the point where we're looking to get a new building. I'd love to be outgrowing this place for several reasons I'd love to be outgrowing this place. I feel like there's a problem that comes up every single day, right, David? But I want the church to be multiplied because God is adding converts, not by us bringing in an audience that seeks to be entertained and amused. When true converts are added to the church, not only does the church grow, but the spiritual health of the church thrives. When we're multiplying through our own means and through our own methods, we're honestly only making the church weaker. The joy of any growing church will only be as God gives. God doesn't bring joy when we're trying to outdo the church down the road. God doesn't bring joy when we're glad that our opinions have been shared. God doesn't bring joy when we make it a point to steal people from other churches. People are, are going to join the church who have come to us from another church. Uh, that happens all the time. In fact, probably the majority of us were attending and probably members of other churches at some point. The point is that we shouldn't be trying to multiply our church, Latham Bible Baptist Church, by seeking to take people away from other God-fearing and God-honoring uh, God churches. The joy that God gives is pretty clear, and it's pretty amazing. It is an unselfish delight for Christ to be glorified in souls being saved, in God's truth being spread, and in heresies being corrected. When the farmer goes about his work, he expects a harvest. He prepares the ground, then he plants the seed, and then he's faithful to continually water that seed. And as he's consistent to do that, to tend to the seeds that have been planted, watering them, making sure that they receive adequate and plenty of sunlight, he expects to see a harvest. At times, he'll have to go in there and, and pull away the weeds, but he still keeps his eyes fixed on an eventual harvest. What are we doing as a church? A body of believers unified on the word of God. We come to church three times a week. We feed on the word of God. We sharpen the tools that God has equipped us with to do what? Are we busy like the farmer working in his field or do we return home and, and put all of our sharpened tools that have been equipped and gotten ready for ministry and do we just hang them back in the tool shed ready to only pick them back up the next time we need to get ready to go back to church? Having an eye for the harvest insists that we're busy serving the Lord not just three hours a week but as often as we have opportunity. Every church, every believer should be looking to the harvest. 
The story is told of a young man who was training to be a pastor and he was extremely discouraged by how few people were getting saved as often as he would go out and share the gospel and soul win. For several months, he was going out, knocking on doors, talking to people on the street about the Lord, but hadn't seen a single person saved. And as he shared his discouragement to his pastor, his pastor responded to him sharply and said, do you expect that God is going to bless you every time you choose to open your mouth? And the young man answered. I said, oh, no, 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 of course not, sir. I don't expect God to do that. Then the pastor said, well, that's why you're not getting a blessing. We ought to expect a blessing. We ought to expect that people would get saved when we share the gospel. We're told in Isaiah 55, verse 11, it says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. If God says that his word will not return void, then it won't. It will not return void. Therefore, we should be looking for a harvest every time we share the gospel. We should be expecting great blessings every time God opens the door and we answer in obedience. But we don't, do we? We don't always expect that people are going to get saved every time we share the gospel. Before we even step foot outside of our own homes, we start with the negativity and we remind ourselves that we're probably not going to see any soul saved today. Let's just be realistic about it. We'll make an attempt, but it's probably not going to happen. We tell ourselves that we're going to be met with a lot of opposition. Probably no one's going to be home if we go out knocking on doors. People are going to be tired. They're not going to want to talk. We lower our expectations so much and to tell ourselves that realistically, we shouldn't expect much of anything. And if this is our attitude towards personal evangelism and soul winning, why would you ever expect to see growth and why would you ever expect to see souls saved? When this is our attitude... We're surprised when we talk to someone and are actually able to get through the entire message of the gospel with them without having a door shut in our face or being told to go take a hike. When if we were treating this the way that God intended, it would be the other way around, that we'd be surprised that a door was slammed in our face, that souls weren't saved every single time. Imagine if farmers work their fields the way that we serve Christ in this area of personal evangelism and soul winning. Imagine if the farmer's attitude was so pessimistic, thinking that all the work he's going to do is never going to amount to anything. And before he even steps out of his house to go and to prepare the fields for the seed to be planted, imagine if he convinced himself that all of his efforts will not yield any, for, any fruit whatsoever. What is that field going to look like? If he's convinced before he even goes and plows that nothing is going to be showing forth from all of this work, that he's not going to yield any fruit, what's the field going to look like? It's not going to look like much of anything because he's not going to get it ready. If he's convinced that all the work he's going to put in is never going to amount to anything, why put forth the effort? And if he does put forth the effort, it's going to be incredibly lackadaisical. It's going to look like a horribly plowed field at best. And if he does end up planting seeds, are those seeds going to really get planted where they need to get planted, let alone are they going to get watered? I can tell you that that field will probably never be ready to receive the seed. And whatever seeds are sown will fall onto hard-packed soil 
or the stony ground which isn't ready to receive it. There will be no harvest, and as a result, there will be no joy. The farmer is able to rejoice when he has sorrowed in plowing his field, sowing seeds in the ground that is ready to receive it, watering those seeds, tending those crops as they grow. Some of us can rejoice in the joy of harvest because in those that we have personally had a hand in leading to the Lord, we see the fruit of our service for Christ. There are many joyful occasions that we'll have in life, but there is nothing more joyful ever than people believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and uniting with the people of God. And I know that to be true because the Bible tells us that as we're rejoicing down here, when a sinner is saved, heaven is rejoicing along with us as well. What a blessed privilege it is that God has given us the opportunity to have a part in someone's eternity, specifically their eternal salvation. God wants every believer to rejoice in the joy of harvest. And I think what happens is that some Christians feel that sharing the gospel is intended to be the work of only a select few. But the truth is that God has called all of us children, all of us, to rejoice in the harvest as we sow the gospel seed. There is joy in serving Jesus, as we say. And there is joy in hearing of others serving Jesus. I pray that we would always have an eye to the harvest. That whether we're laboring in the fields or whether we're watching as others are laboring before us, we might still rejoice in the joy of the harvest. No matter where you find yourself, just remember that you're only going to be as successful as what you expect the Lord to do through you. If you're approaching service for Christ with the lowest expectations, I tell you, and I'm truthfully telling you, that your eyes are not fixed on the harvest. You're not thinking about the harvest if your expectations are as low as possible. Don't expect any results. If your service to Christ is more rooted out of obligation and not out of a love to honor and to glorify God, don't expect to be blessed. When you're serving Christ as you should, with an eye to the harvest, expecting people to hear the gospel and to be saved, don't be discouraged if you don't happen to see the results you were expecting, but remind yourself that the Lord is still at work in the hearts of those that you were ministering to and had the opportunity to share the gospel with, even if you don't necessarily see the results of that right away. Probably every single one of us in here were prayed for by a, a God-fearing parent or a friend or a loved one. And probably it took more than one time for us to hear the message of the gospel before we trusted and believed in Jesus Christ for ourselves. Imagine if whoever it was that was praying over you prayed over you once and then after sharing the gospel and you rejected it, said, you know what, they're done. I know how they're going to respond. I'm not bothering sharing the gospel with them anymore. Imagine. I don't even want to imagine. Imagine if we had one opportunity and that was it. But thankfully, someone who shared the gospel with us had an eye to the harvest and was praying about us for years, maybe, in some cases, and was fighting and fighting and chipping away at this exterior that we had built up, these walls that we had built up around ourselves where we were adamant would never come down because that wasn't for us. 
And as the Holy Spirit worked, and as the prayers went up, little by little, that wall was being broken down. And as the eye was kept to the harvest, someone was faithful to keep sharing the gospel. Someone was faithful to keep living out the gospel in our lives. And as a result, many of us are here today, are saved today, because of someone who prayed, because of someone who was faithful to be the example that we needed them to be with an eye to the harvest and share the gospel with us over and over and over again. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Keep pleading for the Lord to work in the hearts of those that God has put in your life. God has equipped some people to be excellent at preparing the ground for the seeds to be received. He has equipped others to be excellent at sowing those seeds. And he has equipped others in an excellent way at reaping the harvest. Wherever God has you on that spectrum, he's equipped you properly to do the work that he's called you to do. But keep an eye to the harvest. Rejoice in what God is doing through you. God just wants us to be busy using the gifts and talents he's equipped us with for his glory. And maybe you're here thinking that you've been a little lazy in this area, and it's probably true of all of us. Maybe you're thinking of something specific or in someone specific that you need to be witnessing to. Or maybe you've witnessed to someone before and you know you need to be following up with them. Maybe you're here and you realize that your attitude in all of this has been completely wrong. And maybe you've been keeping your expect expectations as low as possible so as to never be discouraged. And as a result, you don't end up inviting people to church. You don't take advantage of opportunities to share the gospel or you don't take part in any other service for Christ. I'm sure we can all, all think of occasions where we wished we had said something, where God opened the door and we knew in our minds this is the opportunity, and we stayed silent. We decided against it for some reason. We were tentative and unsure of ourselves, so we just kept quiet. Don't live your life with regret. Don't shortchange what God can do through you as you yield yourself over to be an instrument in his hands. Remember, God is the one that multiplies. He's using you. And when you look in the mirror, honestly, you kind of ask the question, how could he use someone like me? Don't shortchange how good and great our God is. Because if he can use someone like me and someone like you, he can use anyone. God is the one doing the multiplying. He just wants us to always keep an eye to the harvest. When we're sowing the seed of the gospel, we should always expect the, the harvest. So get in the word. Get in the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It starts coming forth na naturally from your lips with your daily conversations. If you struggle to know what to say, very simple solution, familiarize yourself with the message of the gospel. Take the Romans road. Get as familiar with the Romans road as possible. It's such a simple method and it's such a simple and clear way to present the gospel. Get as familiar with that as possible. Just think about what has God done for you personally? Why has he done it? What, what does he require of us? When does salvation begin? How long does salvation last? Get familiar with the answer to these questions so much so that you're able to articulate it in a clear way if someone should ask you. 
We shouldn't have to struggle our way through presenting the gospel. We should be able to joyfully share the blessed news of the salvation that we have as a result of knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ ourselves, fully expecting that those whom we have the opportunity to share it with will one day be among the harvest that we reap or maybe others reap for the Lord one day. Either way, keep an eye to the harvest. Would you bow with me in prayer here this evening? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have, we have the opportunity, Lord, to come before you. And I know that, Lord, we're here today as children of yours as believers, Lord, because someone shared the gospel with us with an eye to the harvest. Lord, I'm, I'm sure that each of us had probably heard the message of salvation, the gospel presented to us on numerous occasions. And Lord, whatever thick exterior we had, eventually you broke down as we submitted ourselves to the realization that we are hopeless sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, the only one that could bring us salvation was your Son, Jesus Christ, who took our place on Calvary's cross, extending the offer of grace to us, Lord, and all we had to do was to believe on him and to be saved eternally. I'm thankful for the salvation that has been offered, Lord, to us, and I'm thankful for the opportunities to be an instrument of yours, to share this wonderful message to the world that is in desperate need of hearing it. And Lord, may we have eyes to the harvest. May we understand, Lord, that there is incredible joy in the harvest, especially as we understand that you are the one that is multiplying as you use us as your instruments of grace and truth to this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.